Welcome, welcome, welcome to Nodes in the Net, a weekly tangential irreverent conversation that caters to the interests of liminal trickster mystics like you. And like Daniel Ingram, who is our first guest of 2024, a very exciting guest, an amazing get for me, I'd like to think. Daniel Ingram is one of my meditation heroes. He calls himself a meditation athlete in this episode, and I think that's very appropriate for someone who has really plumbed the depths of what's possible to achieve via mental states. I think Carl Jung said that any state that can be arrived at through drugs can also be arrived at through meditation. And, uh, you know, listening to Daniel Ingram talk on a few of the conversation beats that went through this podcast, I think that Carl Jung may very well have been on to something. We talk about fire casino practice. We talk about studying the mental waves of people who are engaged in deep jhanic practice and, and deep concentration states. We talk about just really all sorts of things that I've had questions about as I've begun to deepen my own personal meditation practice. And Daniel was just a, a really a delight and a joy of a human being to talk to. So it's not only an informative and engaging conversation, but also one that I found really entertaining and delightfully funny and surprising in unexpected ways and, and just synchronistic in other ways. Uh, so this is a wonderful episode. And if I sound a little weird to you, it's because I uh, have recently received a lobotomy uh, from my psychiatric medication provider. I'm trying out something new for 2024, which again, I really think is going to be the best year of our lives. Um, But I'm like, basically, this is the most energy I've exhibited all day. I've basically been sitting, staring at a wall drooling, which is itself a form of meditation, I suppose. Uh, So maybe I'll find a way to turn that into my practice. But hey, that's another thing that Daniel and I talk about, sort of the difference between bipolar disorder and, uh, you know, dark night of the soul, kind of chronic dark night symptoms, uh, as he calls them in his wonderful masterwork, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book. Uh, You can find that for free to read at mctb.org. And there are also uh, some other links that you can find the more current work of Dr. Daniel Ingram, uh, which I guess, you know, he is a doctor. He's a doctor of emergency medicine, um, but he's using that medical skill uh, toward these studies of, of human brainwaves in, in these deep concentration states. And he's doing that uh, via his Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium, uh, which you can find information about at the eprc.org that's the eprc.org and you can you can support his work which i think is mind-blowingly exciting something that i've dreamt about since the first time i laid hands on uh you know one of those muse headsets that monitors your brain waves at home it's exactly the kind of thing uh that i've wanted to do like get a bunch of you know magic practitioners together uh and just like examine what happens to our brains when we engage in, uh, you know, sort of Western mysticism, uh, which I don't know, he's a Buddhist dude, but like the lines are very blurred for me with Daniel Ingram when it comes to whether he's a wizard or an arhant, uh, probably both. Let's just be honest. Uh, But you can find information about how to support, you know, become a benefactor 
I, I would love to rest secure in the knowledge that this conversation led to him finding, you know, just one more benefactor to continue this research. Uh, that's at ebenefactors.org. And uh, yeah, I, I also have been uh, reading his other book, uh, which might be some helpful background for you in uh, this conversation. And that is the Fire Casino book, which is sort of a chronicling of one student's attempts to engage with the Fire Casino practice over the course of a, I think it's about a month long retreat. And you can find that at firecasino.org. That's casino with a K. And I know I just gave you a whole bunch of links. So why, why don't you uh, remember just this one? Uh, Creekmasons.substack.com. That's where you're going to be able to find all these other links and, uh, you know, ways to get in touch with Daniel Ingram yourself and, and uh, support his work and learn from his amazing career as a dedicated and diligent and hardcore meditation master. Uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm lobotomized. I'm not going to continue rambling for too long. Uh, but welcome to, I guess, sort of like season three of Nodes in the Net, where season one was kind of just the me and JT episodes. Season two was me exploring with all sorts of different people and sort of finding my feet as a conversational partner. And now we've got season three, which I'm hoping will be better than ever. And I think it will be. Uh, but before we jump into this very first interview, I do want to read a little bit from the Creek Mason Substack blog post called Substack Growth Hacks. Not quite. Uh, this is an essay about self-sabotage that I wrote just before skiving off and refusing to show up for work <laughs> for, for the Creek Masons for uh, several many months. I guess, you know, we did the holiday hiatus. We uh, stored up a whole bunch of new interviews. I've got a whole bunch lined up for you. I'm very excited to share them all with you. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted to explore this idea of self-sabotage as a righteous way to navigate being a creator in algorithmic recommendation culture. Uh, so let me read a little bit of this essay for you. You can find it at creekmasons.substack.com. Please do subscribe there to get information on when new Nodes in the Net episodes are posted, sent directly to your inbox. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, and I, I appreciate every single node we get, every single Creek Mason we find, every liminal trickster mystic who comes back into the fold. And I hope that you'll be uh, the one who does it today. Please do join us. So let's read a little bit of this essay. The fact is that infinite growth on a finite planet is the definition of unsustainable. So how can we stop trying to scale the success of our projects from day one? As Douglas Rushkoff says, scale is often the problem. Algae scales up to destroy the ecosystem of a lake. Cancer scales to kill its host. Admittedly, it's a balancing act. There's a certain amount of self-sabotage we want in order to subvert surveillance capitalism and stay intentionally small, tight-knit, vibey, and true to our values. But that's balanced against self-sabotage that is rooted in not valuing our art and our effort and our specialness to the degree it deserves. If you put in a lot of work into a piece, perhaps it deserves the best chance possible at being seen. When you approach the line demarcating clickbait, however, you're executing a crime against the climate. 
My commitment is not to consistency, it's to truth, uh, said Gandhi. Here's the thing, the concrete takeaway. The most basic advice that the surveillance capitalists and the coaches who teach being a good pawn to it promote is well worth ignoring. So what if you get penalized by your platform of choices algorithm for not posting consistently? You may have heard that the first clock towers were aggressively vandalized. The artisans who saw them springing up into the little towns knew that those bells served the factory bosses who built the towers, not them. They knew that clock time would force them to abandon their biorhythms and become productive but replaceable cogs in someone else's profit machine. It's a good analogy for the demand to produce content daily for social apps, various recommendation algorithms. Is your commitment to pleasing the machines, or is it to making sincere work that you're authentically proud of? Even shadow banned, you still have the chance to make that one genuine connection that turns into an active collaborator in your community. Even without virality, you can still find the others. And hey, if you follow in JT's footsteps and join the Creek Masons, we can have each other's backs when the biorhythms call for contraction, emotionally, spiritually, and creatively. Ultimately, that's the kind of self-sabotage I'm promoting in place of growth hacks. It comes down to checking in with your body. If you feel like making something, make something. If you feel like resting for a day, a week, or a month, rest. To borrow a metaphor from Daniel Pinchbeck, it's what the cells in our body do when they're keeping us healthy. They do what they're called to do. What can happen when we stop listening to the urge to expand, profit, and monetize that's programmed into us? We serve the all instead of the economy. Abundance follows. All right, folks, let's jump into this interview with the great Dr. Daniel Ingram. Enjoy. Daniel. Hey, how are you? Hey, <laughs> uh, it's such an honor to have you. Uh, Daniel Ingram, uh, author of uh, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book, <laughs> <laughs> which is just a fantastic name just right off the bat. That's a, that's a fun thing to, to sink your teeth into. You know, one of the things that you say a lot in that book is that uh, people wouldn't be drawn to something so esoteric unless they'd already had some sort of spiritual experience. I think that's uh, usually true, yeah. Yeah, it, and I got to say, uh, it's true among many of the members of the uh, Creek Mason community that this podcast belongs to. Uh, it's where I think, you know, there's the expression, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Um, but no one really talks about the during enlightenment when your head is just exploding and right. you're like searching for any kind of life raft. So I'm grateful to you because MCTB has been has been that for for uh, me and, and some of my friends here. 
Wow, that is really gratifying to hear. And I'm, you know, I'm really just paying forward kindnesses that were shown to me. So people helped me out with good tech and figured things out long before I got into this stuff and, and, you know, transmitted it across thousands of years on palm leaves and orally and, and you know, sweaty jungles and, you know, <laughs> mountain caves. And, and, you know, like we're just blessed beyond reason today to have the resources that we do. And I was really just paying forward kindnesses. You know, people helped me for free. They didn't ask for anything. They just helped me out as friends help out friends. And in that same spirit, I've, I've just been paying it forward, you know, which has been happening for thousands of years. Again, I was not smart enough to figure this stuff out, but I could follow instructions. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. just trying to help in some little way to continue a long conversation. Yeah. And you, I think you are helping. The, uh, you're not just good at following instructions, but also at writing them in, in such a clear and like incisive way. Uh, you know, not Again, to flatter you over much, but well, well, I hear that. But like, like I got, you know, I got this, all these old books up, you know, this stuff, right. You know, these, yeah. the, the, they wrote clearly, they thought clearly, they made cool lists. They, they identified important stages. They, they came up with cool paradigms and they, lots of great analogies. Mm. And so, yeah, all that. Yeah, I love the lists. It's it's a really interesting thing to uh, to encounter all the lists in Buddhism. Like the, uh, it's sort of a religion of lists. Kinda, yeah. At least like, the Theravada, sir. Sure. Yeah. Um, what What do you think? So something that you said a second ago that I kind of want to like draw out is it's something that I was just talking with Mitch Horowitz about when he was on the podcast. Oh, cool. There's um, there's this cultural moment or civilizational moment, maybe historical moment that we're at right now, where things are being translated that have never been translated before. And, um, you know, we all have like access to gurus in the form of like, uh, literature, like I can, I can be taught by people like Alan Watts on YouTube or, or, you know, whoever. And, uh, it really like decentralizes the whole thing. I wonder, I'd like to get your take on this. There's an, uh, a feeling that a lot of people have right now that we're progressing as spiritually as a, as a culture and that like more people are encountering things like pragmatic Dharma and, you know, other sort of like new age adjacent concepts and becoming more embodied and awake. And, uh, and I think that it's in large part because we have access to all these books that no one has ever had access to simultaneously. I mean, you'd have to be a monk to do this, you know, and now the householder path is kind of more available. Um, what do you think? Are we entering an Aquarian age? (laughs) That's funny. I am actually technically a double Aquarian. Um, and my mom's a triple Aquarian, (laughs) but like, Are we entering an Aquarian age? I think we're entering a very strange age and we're going through a very strange transition time. Is it Aquarian? Maybe. Sure. Okay, fine. From a sort (laughs) of a like positions of the stars point of view. And and is it a time of tremendous inquiry and and spiritual development and other things? That is definitely true. I Mm. see a lot of things going in very negative directions right now. So I could I could wax incredibly cynical about things going towards, you know, slipping towards fascism and awful things and us burning the planet down and stuff. But 
you know, mm-hmm. like, so we're moving to a very mixed age is what it looks like to me, honestly, where yes, there is tremendous rise in meditation and psychedelics and consciousness exploration and altruism and people coming together to do great things and save the planet and make a difference. And yet I also, you know, could equally argue we're sliding into something God awful and that there's a lot of problems right now. And so like, so I, there's a part of me that really delights in the sort of metaphorical resonance of a term like Aquarian age. And there's another cynical, a lot of parts of me that go, Oh, come on. (laughs) Like this is a, this is a crap show. Like this, this is a disaster. Like if that's what the Aquarian age is like, you know, like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So I, I have both reactions. And others probably as well, but we'll start with those. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the I mean, it's both and really. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those paradoxes that you kind of have to embrace. There, there's. Uh, what do you think? Like, are we experience. sliding into an Aquarian age? Kind of, um, maybe. What was your question? What do you, do you think we're sliding into an Aquarian age, or what do you think? Uh, thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's you know it's complicated. I I agree with your with your analysis. You know, and there's also like world wars and plagues and racism and civil war and all all sorts of horrible things. Uh, you know, there's Massive no shortage. Species of, die out. And- yeah, mass extinction. That's right. And mm-hmm. and just the collapse of ecosystems, the boiling of the oceans. There's a lot of terrible things going on. Um, uh, one of my yeah, teachers, the West Antarctic ice sheet apparently is unsalvageable. That's going to be a mess. That's like three to five meters of sea level rise when that one really goes. That's a lot. You That's know, a lot. A That's lot. the big I stuff. I think, what is it, like 50% of the population lives in that zone, mm-hmm. you know, because we have all these coastal cities. It's going to be yep. Atlantis all over again, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. But um, but there's, I don't know, there's one of my teachers is Paul Selig, who's a very woo person. He's a, like a channeler. Uh, but uh, I, I love his stuff because, you know, regardless of the source, I sort of maintain an agnosticism about whether he's really like bringing it down from, you know, beings without bodies. But I do love what he says. And I think it it amounts to a a translation of like hermetic ideas and, you know, some, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Jung, like it's, it's pleasantly packaged uh, wisdom from people who I respect. But one of the things that he says, or his guides say is that, in order to uh, like lay down a garden, you have to first like excavate at all the skeletons that are buried under the ground. And so the the situation that we find ourselves in right now is full of turmoil and uh, challenge and like dukkha, you know. But uh, or I guess and at the same time, there's a you know, what's been excavated and brought to light can be disinfected by the sun and it can be cleared out. And then, you know, maybe we can plant something nice and fragrant. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, the, the narrative that we have in West, in the Western world is, is one of like linear progress toward inevitable death and then a like nihilist void. But, (laughs) you know, there's other options. We could reincarnate civilization, you know, we could be circular. Although the notion that that's actually what we have in the West is really not true. So the vast majority of people don't believe that. 
right? So like the vast majority of Westerners actually believe a wide range of other things. So it's funny. It's funny how there's this sort of like intellectual hegemony of that kind of materialist nihilism when that is not actually the truth of the West. If you asked most people, that's not what they believe. They believe something else. And so it's funny how that keeps being repeated. And yet I actually pretty sure the statistics are, if someone looked this up, like, you know, what are the Gallup or Pew polls or whatever say about this? It's going to be something else. Yeah. Right? Is, is, is the dominant point. is going to be a mix of things of, you know, rebirth in heaven or reincarnation or some sort of energy that like we're all go, come from return to, or it's kind of, I don't, I'm guessing that pure, you know, no, nihilistic extinctionism materialism is not the dominant paradigm even as much as it seems to be and even as much as we seem obsessed with going that direction through corporate greed and stupidity and wars and and all that stuff we seem pretty excited about it but yet i don't think it's what most people think yeah you know that's a good point and so it's important to keep that in mind i think that uh especially a lot of the thinkers that you know whose blogs i read or whatever they have kind of a chip on their shoulder against the scientific materialists and they're it they're maybe maybe there's a little bit of a projection of power there that is unrealistic or unfounded in in you know what's actually on the ground reality yeah i think so yeah but at the same time, there is this like this progression toward enlightenment. Uh, uh, m- maybe like a uh, this is one of the questions that I that I posed to you in the email. There's uh, this concept in theosophy, or no, anthroposophy, I think it is, of the dweller on the threshold, and it's it's this idea of a uh, a, a being or an entity that I think is, I mean, it could be just metaphorical, but something that seems to happen pretty often to people who are on spiritual paths is they get like sort of booted off of it or the, the strong gust knocks them into a, a pile of manure on the side of the path and like they get stuck there for a while and then have to get back up and join again. Um, but that's what the dweller on the threshold is supposed to be responsible for. If you like get into those like beautiful jonic enlightenment states uh, before you've burned off all your karma, then he boots you back into into reality to suffer some more and, and relearn your lessons. Well, so is, there's a lot of fun things there. A, I love the the metaphor just from an archetypal point of view. Obviously, that's that's it's rich imagery. Secondly, the whole thing of ha- you know someone having a major opening and entering up into some sort of dark nighty thing that does kick them off the path. A stage I would often call reobservation or other things or a dark night or whatever. That's mm-hmm. actually super common. So it's it's descriptive. Uh, the third thing is that the notion of burning off all karma, I just don't know about this one. Even the Buddha yeah. had residual karma that, that he was dealing with. If you read the old texts, like he had back pain from some something, something he did in some past life and headaches from some other, some bad thing. So like the notion that you have to boot off, burn off all your karma to get to enlightenment, I really don't think is true um, from about 10 different point of view. But certainly in the old stories, if you believe Buddhism and plenty of other spiritual teachers had all kinds of unfortunate things happen to them, even if they seemed to be really awake, they they sometimes made unfortunate lifestyle choices and legal choices yeah. and ethical choices, and yet might have had a lot of awakening. And yeah, people are going to say, oh no, they were only halfway up the mountain or that kind of thing. But I actually think you can be very, very awake and still have plenty of karmic 
stuff going on and to deal with. Not that it doesn't help to to you know forgive and to clear out and to re- find some redemption and some whatever. Like obviously, like there are yeah. cool things we can do with karma, but the notion that we're going to be on this earth karma free, I think, is mythical. Also, in a beautiful and compelling way, but maybe sometimes in an impairing way that then makes the whole thing seem just so impossible that like, how could you possibly clear out all your karma? What does that even mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's an, that's an interesting point. So you've, you're kind of uh, separating the clearing of karma from the attainment of enlightenment. And of course, this is like one of the, I think they're, they're somehow loosely related, but the notion it's, it's not that there isn't some relationship there because if we have less guilt and remorse and less, you know, whatever bad, awful causal stuff happening to us is awakening yeah. probably often easier. Yeah, not that people can't wake up in terrible circumstances. They can and do, right? So yeah. it's not like terrible circumstances and unfortunate states of mind always prevent awakening. They don't. But is it easier? Yeah, like if I had to bet, I'd bet on the person who was having less karmic nastiness going on. Sure, but that that doesn't mean that other people can't cross the line into, you know, as I say, stumbling towards this moment as fast as people can go. And if this moment is nicer, it's a lot easier to stumble towards it and recognize it, you know, the intrinsic luminosity and stuff. There's some states of mind that it's really easier to wake up in, no question, but you can wake up to any of them. They're all the same from a certain ultimate point of view. Yeah. So what's, what's the, what's the draw of waking up? You know what I mean? What, like, I, maybe, Maybe this is a weird question because no, it's a critical I, question. Yeah, but I think like a lot of the people I know feel like kind of drawn toward it, and like I guess you have like a spiritual experience or something, and then you you kind of like want to keep figuring it out until you get there. But something that I've been struggling with a lot lately is a lot of my teachers are saying, you know, it's not going to necessarily make you more polite. It's not gonna. It's not gonna help. I would you agree like, with well, that one. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I know plenty of awake people who, when they go online, sometimes including myself, are not the nicest of all people. That's a thing. Yeah, yeah, and and so like that concerns me because it's like, well, you know, I think one of my main sources of dukkha is is like this discomfort with uh, alienation, and so like it's not going to make me more polite. It's not going to solve my problems. It's you know whatever, whatever. Uh, what, uh, I think it's why I get so stuck on, uh, like the, what is it? The second formless jhana, um, which I haven't like attained. I've, I've maybe like based on your descriptions in MCTB, I've probably had some like jhana two or three, uh, you know, kind of action, um, which I, even that, like the dweller on the threshold seems to want to kick me out of, um, but you know, the second formless jhana is like a, a practice goal for me has been pretty sticky. And uh, the idea of like experiencing boundless consciousness and universal love and uh, unlimited compassion, you know, like uh, in MCTB, you're very clear that's that's a distraction from the path. And, you know, there's no, I'm there's not. No, 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 no. Thing. Wait a second. Hold on. Wait a second. Okay. So, yeah, so yeah. the second training is a critical one right? Learning the second training is a really important thing. And tremendous amount of wisdom can actually come out of some of the foremost realms, particularly the sixth. The boundless consciousness is a profound attainment. And then even the sort of lesser versions of that, like 4.6, where there's still some form in there, but there's this real appreciation of sort of all-pervading sense of presence or luminosity or awareness or whatever you want to call it, 
these help. These do good things to the mind. They get you closer to this moment again, which is always a strange thing. Like they, they get you closer to this. Um, again, mm-hmm. the, like the non-dual people are already cringing, right? Cause they're like, you should just say this, right? This is always it. And then the koan becomes, how can this possibly be the answer that I'm looking for? Well, that's one of the most important koans, giving some, cre- you know, credo, you know, sort of kudos to the Zen people. And mm-hmm. so if, and then if you can figure out how to just see that pervade through everything, that sense of light or presence or whatever, even if it's very, very, very subtle, right? That's actually very powerful practice. And to just be here in the sense of space and notice that everything is aware of itself, even the space in between things, you can be recognized that there's something, there's a space here. Yeah, right? there, there's something. Yeah. There's space as a thing you can recognize, even if it's clear and doesn't seem to have any colors or very subtle, statically static yeah. colors for those who see that, like I do. And so, like, there is a simplicity in just like not putting these things as elevated, faraway things, and instead attempting to see them here now. It's a very Dzogchen Sutra Mahamudra approach, but it's very important. When people get very future fixated or like, oh, that's so far away, or I really like that one, I don't like this. Well, this always must somehow be where awakening is found. And so the, from that sort of mm. uh, Dogen point of view of practice enlightenment, where the practice itself has to be the, the manifestation of enlightenment or something in some kind of very straightforward, literal way, it, it's important to, to remember this. And then the presence and attention to that also helps with developing the concentration, because if you're rejecting this, obviously it's hard to concentrate on. And if you're rejecting the now, that's obviously a problem in favor of some future now that isn't here. So that obviously doesn't work. And so this kind of radical attending to just this moment as it occurs and recognizing somehow there is luminosity and consciousness and awakening and ungraspability and immediacy and naturalness and causality and all the the qualities are here. Where else could they be? They can't be in the past in any relevant way, nor the future. And and so just to kind of remember that we must focus on the this, the now as the path and the goal, the 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 way, the truth and the light, the method and result. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. So what you're describing is, it kind of feels like a, like a Eckhart Tolle kind of thing. Like you, you know, uh, he's got it going on, you know, he's pointing to something incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's gotten there via, uh, what is it? Satori or whatever, but it's still, you know, he's, he's in the, in the zone, I think. Uh, well, I don't know if he would have even called it that. He got there by sitting depressed on a park bench or something and just yeah, woke up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I understand I this correctly. Is, I'm not any expert in his story, but that's my sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard as well. I I, I think that's what I remember from uh, The Power of Now. Uh, but that concept, the non-dual thing that you're bringing up of like, we are- Not I just mean, concepts, got- but also like an immediate- like it is, it becomes the biggest duh moment of your entire life when you wake up and you realize, <laughs> wait, this was always it. It was just yeah. noticing the transience, the ingraspability, the naturalness, the immediacy, and the fact that it knows itself exactly where it is all the way through. There, there's something incredibly literal about this that just must be remembered, or else you're going to be staggering around trying to find a now that is not this one. Good luck with that. Yes. Yeah. Wow. But like, but I, I don't know. So something that you talk about a lot is like the importance of um, like 
building up these concentration states. And Well, that and, is all true. And you build yeah. up the concentration by concentrating on this now. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Being as there is no other object other than now to concentrate on. Right. <laughs> I, you know, that's a good point. Um, I guess the, the like flip though of like recognizing suddenly, oh, I've always been enlightened. Everything is enlightened. It's, it's just the, the natural. The qualities state. that one recognizes when one awakens have always been true which is like always being enlightened, but not quite the same. There is something in the recognition of it, but the recognition is of this now, so you better be looking at this now to recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, what's the, what's the key? How do you, how do you, I, is, is it like hours and hours of practice or, or like- For some, you... for, actually for a lot, for most. I'll say for most. For most, mm-hmm. it is hours and hours of practice. Yeah. Now, I know people who just woke up. I, I know people who just got it. No retreat time, very little practice. They just saw it. They're very rare. Um, mm-hmm. Most of us will not be them. I was certainly not one of them. I was uh, I was told these things. This is it right now. Just this thing, the immediate truth of your experience, pointing out instructions, whatever. the You know, I got all that and I didn't get it. I couldn't see it. I had to build up all kinds of skills and I had to go over this very roundabout path to get to here, right? But, mm-hmm. and other people generally report something like that. I had to build up my capacity to perceive these things and to stay, accept, to become accepting enough and become tranquil and peaceful and present and all of mm. these factors enough. Those are important. And so, yes, if you don't have these factors and someone does a direct pointing out thing like I've just been doing and countless books before you and be here now, the poster on your wall yeah, already right did, here. you know, and, and these people have been saying this for a long time, right? So we get these pointing out things, we get these glimpses, these hopefully maybe glimpses or hints and, oh yeah, I, that makes sense. And then we wander towards some other now that somehow isn't this one, even though we're wandering right now. Again, a paradox. But then if you don't see it, then you build up the capacities until you can see it now here, right? And that's what I had to do. I had to do a lot of that. And in that process, I became something of a meditative athlete and had all kinds of adventures in consciousness and got to explore magic and these weird states of mind and the highs, loads, and weirds and plateaus of the path. That was all kinds of cool. Eventually stumbling towards this moment and building up the capacity to recognize this immediate thing here now. So it took me a while to get that. And, you know, it was an organic process from a certain point of view. It couldn't possibly have gone any shorter than it did or followed a non-roundabout path because that was exactly Mm -hmm. how causality laid it down from a certain sort of super deterministic point of view. Yeah. And on the other hand, those of us, you know, and I also don't want to like go all like some spiritual teachers who as soon as they get to this and recognize, oh, this is it. They just say this is it from then on and they don't give anybody the progressive path or teach them how to build the skills to recognize what they've recognized. It's very easy to kind of fall into that subtle arrogance. So I I teach all the tools and tricks that I found helpful to finally realize this was it. And hopefully someone else, and I reference all kinds of other people with good teachings and tricks and say, if those don't work, go find some other good tools and tricks and (laughs) your own organic process that allows you to recognize this is it. Yeah, that's that's a question that I had actually. Like uh, your own organic process. Um, one of the things about the lists of Buddhism is that they feel very like they're a solid thing. They're they're concretized, and very wise people have created them over time. And the practices are like it's sometimes uh, inadvisable to mix like you know this tantric thing with this meditation practice or you know whatever whatever. 
Um, but like well, how, uh, how, I mean, am I going to get to enlightenment if I just like free ball it and <laughs> like make up my own, you know, meditation? You don't know. I mean, some of the universal truths are straightforward. Like it has to be based on this moment. Somehow there are going to be things that when you find it, you're going to likely say kind of the same stuff that everybody else does in some kind of way, probably, or something like it, because this is it. And it's straightforwardly, you know, something. On the other hand, like we should not forget that this was a bunch of people wandering around, figuring this stuff, iterating, and every fixed teaching you see today was somebody else's de novo book of shadows or whatever back in the day that they were just kind of crashing around and figuring stuff out and having the conversations. You know, the Buddha studied with a bunch of teachers and played around with a whole bunch of stuff. and, And so did plenty of his nuns and monks. They explored all kinds of interesting things and did all kinds of practices and got there by, you know, some mix of that being a part of their causality. And then Buddhism itself continued to iterate and grow and change and expand and recategorize and classify and explore and and do all kinds of fascinating things and evolve as it hit other cultures and got influenced by and influenced by other stuff and mixed it up. And and so, you know, I was talking to this um, guy, David Germano, and he was like the medieval period. There was this period where there was like this incredible richness of exploration and texts. And then kind of all that just kind of got solidified into these like, no, this is the this is the, the tantric. This is the deity. This is the mantra. This is its mantra. This is its thing. And it became this very fixed thing. And he was really sort of bemoaning the loss of some of the that period of rich innovation in like, you know, nine, 900 through 1200 or something, when there was this incredible proliferation of just people going out there and figuring out wild stuff, you know, and sounds like the, the good stuff that they figured out got codified later, mm-hmm. you know, but probably some of the bad stuff might have been good, good too, or at least for somebody who knows, somebody found it yeah. useful as they wrote it down. And we have records of it today. Yeah, that's, I think that's one of the things about like Buddhist teachings is like, a lot of times I heard Duncan Trussell say this recently, you're like, you're listening to Arnold Schwarzenegger give a TED talk to bodybuilders. And (laughs) like, it it might not be the exact, the exact right teaching for you at your stage or whatever, but each of them has insight to someone, it it seems like. Yeah. And, um, didn't he do a lot of that with isometrics or something? Is that right? You know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is that right? Am I making this up? Didn't he build a lot of his mass by like isometric exercises and wasn't using weight? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess it, it, that is that makes it a, a stronger metaphor for sure. Because a lot of the, uh, I mean, that's that's what meditation is basically. And these days, people would be using, you know, all kinds of fancy gear and all kinds of fancy stuff, which he didn't have any of back in the day when he was becoming right. totally ripped. Yeah. What's your What's your take on like the? Do you, have you ever heard of this Muse uh, headband? I have a Muse headband that I actually just posted an EEG data set of me using it on a fire casino retreat and comparing it to a 19 channel um, research grade EEG that I also have a Cognionics Quick 20R. I guess it's 20 channel, but I usually only use 19. Um, okay. And uh, so at that data set, you can find it on the OpenScienceFoundation.io with a lot of fascinating fire casino phenomenology. Is yeah. I have video and audio of me re- recording the EEG and talking about what I'm experiencing. That's so, so cool. if you want to talk about like someone kind of tripping out on fire casino and see what it looks like on somebody's brain. And then I was playing around with this. We noticed that on the on the cognonics, which has occipital leads, leads that go in the back. That was uh-huh. actually where we're seeing a lot of the really cool stuff. This is hardly a surprise given that it's a visual based practice. Yeah. So I actually let and then like turn the thing around and put the muse on the back of my head to to catch the catch 
some occipital lead data and see if that was a useful thing. Anyways, so the so yeah, I've got them used and I've been playing around with it some, and you know we'll see what comes from all that. Yeah, why why do you ask? I, well, I I I bought one myself, and hmm. uh, I don't know, like it's it's a it's just sort of an interesting like concept that you could map. Uh, you know, like I think that I saw something in. I forget what magazine recently about uh, mapping of jonic states to brainwave patterns. I yeah. thought that was, I thought like that's, that's really interesting that they're able to do that. Well, we've, we've actually, A, I've been doing that for a while. We have a cessation article where I'm attaining cessations and this, I'm, I'm the, um, that paper has come out and it's looking at the fact that they do have very distinct signatures when you have a fruition or cessation event. So you can find that paper with um, Matthew Sicat and some other researchers. Oh, cool! And so you you can just go online and look up cessation Matthew Sicat and and some of the other people, great people, and you will find that paper. And then uh, we have other papers that are in review from some data we collected at Harvard, ninety six lead EEG, more high density, um, and looking at the phenomenology of genres through that lens. We've got some other papers that are out there. Wow! That I've helped. That's uh, that's yeah. Um, yeah, help design these studies and was the pilot subject for them and help fund them and find some funding. So that's amazing. I, I'm so excited yeah. by that. You know, it, it like, uh, to bring the, the science in, into a realm where it's so subjective and, and like find a way to actually turn it into something measurable is really exciting. What are the, like the, you know, the observable effects of a fruition event or a cessation event? Like, what does it look like? So what it looks like is about 20 or so seconds before you start getting this massive drop in alpha power. And okay. then it, that that drop in alpha power peaks out at the cessation fruition, then it comes back up over the next 20-something seconds or so. And, and alpha is responsive. That's a brainwave pattern that's alpha responsible. Alpha is, is around 9 to 12 hertz and is one of the primary rhythms of the brain. Mm-hmm. And related to all kinds of things. I am no EEG expert, by the way. I sure. put these things in my head. I have some basic EEG analysis chops, but you should definitely refer to some people who have some more skill than me. And I was actually just at a um in Miami last week playing around. There's a company called Supermind.us with my friends Chad and Jeff, and they uh, were um, showing me some of their technologies for helping people to figure out how to shift their brain into better patterns of function. And mm. also then they wanted to record me doing various meditative states. And we're looking at the those through their analysis software and their analysis algorithms. And so it'd be like shift into a state, have 10 seconds to shift to the next one, and they measure it for a minute, shift to yeah. the next one, measure it for a minute. And it was really interesting to see how some of the different states really did have very radically different power signatures in some of the various leads they were sampling. <coughs> so that that was fun. And just sort of a proof of concept of, you know, the fact that you can train your mind, you can learn to do these things, this can become obsessible, sorry, accessible, if you, obsessible, that's funny. I definitely obsessed <laughs> about this for, for a long time, which is how I learned to do these things. And then you can, um, you know, then have a lot of access to where the switches are and just know how to throw them in the same way that you move your hand or you can learn to play guitar or yeah. do whatever. yeah. Well, that's that's how babies learn to coordinate mm-hmm. their bodies, right? They yep. see their hand and smack themselves in the face, you know, a hundred times until they realize, like, oh, I actually can move this with my will. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and the biofeedback tech is getting better and better so people can figure out the direction of better states of mind and learn to shift into those. And supermind.us is one of the ones that's playing around with that. That's so cool. That's so cool. What about the fire casino practice? Because I've done a, a couple of fire casinos uh, inspired by your writing. And oh, cool. Yeah, it's it's really tricky to get the uh, Nimita to do anything. I get caught in the mark is what you call it. Can you like maybe give like a rundown of uh, the terms and, and like what a fire casino is? I'm not sure it's a common meditation technique. It, Sure. So candle gazing and fire gazing is ancient. We've been staring at fires for as long as we've had yeah. fires to stare at because they're intrinsically fascinating to the human brain. But basically, you look at a candle or a light source until you get an after image when you close your eyes, which for a candle might be a minute or something. And for a mm -hmm. brighter light source might be seconds or, or like, you know, depending on how bright it is. And then you close your eyes and you see whatever you see. And it really does not matter what it is. It matters that you attend to it in an interested and curious sort of way. So we, we come into for the first tense of what we call Neko's triad. Neko is a meditator friend of mine. And Neko's triad is patience, faith, and curiosity. So you have some faith mm. that if you're patient and curious, cool things will happen. And then it's just, a, and then you, so you, once you've closed your eyes, you follow the colors on the backs of your eyelids or however, wherever you think of them as being until mm -hmm. you're not interested in following them anymore. And that might be a minute, that might be a few seconds, that might be an hour. It just depends on what's going on. And then you open your eyes and you look at the light source again and you close your eyes and you do it again. And the word casino, by the way, means external support for concentration. And it's a word that comes out of the Pali language from back in the day. Um, Pali is a language related to Sanskrit that most of the old Theravada texts were written down in. And gotcha. so they... Um, yeah. And then if you do this in high dose, so the, the trick to getting out past the Merc, as we call it, so the Merc, so initially you see what we call the dot. Yeah. <laughs> you, you see the dot and the dot is like the, you know, becomes this, you know, usually sort of depending on the color of light you were looking at, it might be red, it might be yellow, it might be green, it might be all kinds of colors. Mm -hmm. And then it usually wiggles off to the sides and fades and morphs and gets stuff around it. And then that all kind of fades out to something we call the Merc. And the Merc is frustrating and the Merc is like black static or garbage and it just looks like n nothing to people and they don't find it interesting. And then you, you open your eyes and you look at the flame again. But at some point, the Merc can come to predominate. Usually if you go on a retreat and you're doing this 6, 10, 12, 18 hours a day, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you know, within a day or two, all of the cool stuff you were starting to see just disappears and you've just got staticky black gray garbage is what it feels yeah. like and you can barely get anything to happen and then you get it kind of murky and the murk can last from day like one or two or three to day six eight ten twelve depending on how good you are and how well your capacity is to, to just stare at gray black static and yeah. what looks like <laughs> visual garbage because if you can continue to concentrate on that eventually it will organize into cool things and you get out past the murk and out past the murk you've paid your entrance price and once you've paid your entrance price, just in the sheer organic process of your brain, figuring out how to cool, see cool stuff and what looks like visual statically garbagey nothing, then you get into all the cool color washes and color control and image control and more three-dimensional stuff and more luminous stuff and maybe entities or patterns or fractals or God knows which, you know, animals yeah. and sacred symbols and realms and all kinds of cool things, you know, and that's mm. out, out in the territory where you like, you actually can do the lesser finishing ritual of the pentagram and you actually can yeah. draw symbols in the air and see them hanging there. Like you read in the books and no, thought nobody could actually do. And you really can <laughs> see entities and you really can get into wild insight stages and you really can see the massive luminosity of space and the star field and the, all this 
cool stuff you can you can get to that we talk about in Fire mm. Casino Glossary. If you go to Fire Casino, F-I-R-E-K-A-S-I-N-A dot O-R-G, you can mm-hmm. find our glossary. And this is all accessible stuff. And then you can listen to people's audiobooks and reports and diaries. And we've got a free book there that was co-written by my friend Shannon Stein and myself. Um, yeah. you can, or you can download the, the, you know, you can download the PDF for free or get the, get the book, you know, f- for just the print cost. We don't make anything on this at Lulu. So mm. when we print it and, you know, explore this, realizing this is not safe. So I should give the, the caveat warning, <laughs> right? High dose fire casino is not safe. We try to make it safer. We give some advice, but this is weird stuff, right? This is weird stuff. Mm. It can go very strangely. It can get people into very bizarre territory. Playing with the powers can make you nuts. It's just a thing. And yeah. um, not everybody <laughs> handles this well. And so realize this is kind of like skydiving or mountain climbing or rappelling or something. You can make it a lot safer with good technique and good safety and good choices of who actually does this. But we don't know how to make this entirely safe yet and maybe ever. So yeah. just you've been warned. And that is not, by the way, an invocation for you macho people who like high risk and necessarily do this. <laughs> Right. This is not a challenge. This is just an honest disclosure of like, hey, be careful out there, kids, in the same way you would hopefully be with psychedelics or whatever other interesting technology. Keep your wits about you and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, a a metaphor that a friend of mine uh, shared with me. We were talking about uh, magic in general, magic with a K. And, uh, her her take on it was that it was a lot like giving a child or like a toddler uh, some adult tool, like a gun or something. You know, something something that you need to have a certain level of maturity and and foresight to be able to handle responsibly. And the funny thing is that unless you've had magical experiences, most of us are magical children when we start out having these experiences, even if we're adults, even if we have graduate degrees, even if we've been very successful in life, when we start Mm -hmm. having magical experiences, count yourself as a magical child and treat yourself (laughs) appropriately, right? Do not imagine that just because you have maturation in any other area of your life that you're suddenly a mature, you know, wizard or witch or whatever, you know, sorry for the gender laced terms, but you know what I mean? And, um, and so yeah, and we all, and at best, we're going to be half baked magical beings at our very best, right? Humans are half baked magical creatures. We're glitchy when it comes to the powers. We are easily fascinated and seduced and corrupted by them. It's just like the rings of power. You know, the elves are intrinsically yeah. magical creatures and humans, like, you know. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, there's some so wisdom much. in there. There is. Yeah, that, so, uh, you know, like jumping way back though, what, so you're like, you're performing, this is something that I've like dreamed of for years now, the idea of uh, getting like a bunch of people together with the Muse headbands and having them do the LBRP or, or like the, um, the middle pillar exercise or something yeah, like a good that. One. You're, you're doing it with uh fire casino. So there must've been something interesting going on there. Yeah, so we have what we're actually we're going to have the Fire Casino Research Retreat and we've got that coming up. We think in the spring if we can get all the money and everything organized and the IRB approval mm. and everything and the people so what we're actually going to do EEG with Fire Casino and all practice together and power up together and see if we get some joint effects and some joint you know similarities of brain waves and see if when we all 
you know, do ritual stuff together if, if in fact, you can see a more alignment than you would oh, expect. Wow. So that's actually going to be happening. We're pretty excited about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Justin so Riddle cool. and Marjorie Willicott and some other people are helping us do some neuroscience on this. So we're okay. excited. Yeah. And yeah. Wow. That, it, it's Sorry such to a other trip. members of the team I didn't mention. It's just the first two names that came to mind, but yeah. 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 And I, I'll, of course, I'll have links to, you know, we, we can, we can get all that together over email or whatever, make sure I've credited everyone that, <laughs> that you'd like to credit in the show notes or whatever. Uh, for sure, the link to Fire Casino will be at uh, Creek Mason's website, the Creek Mason Substack. Wonderful. Um, yeah, we're we're really excited to have these opportunities to do real science on this stuff. Yeah, that's it's so exciting. There's, um, you know, there's an attitude in a lot of the circles that I move through of like kind of just like uh, hazarding it, like. Um, you know, it's the fool tarot card, like just jumping into uh, magic and like, I'm going to do an LBRP every day for a month or something and They'll see what learn something. Yeah, <laughs> something. Uh, <laughs> the, but I think that almost, it almost seems like the idea of doing fire casino practice first and developing this mastery of the visual field is like and internal mantras as well. I've emphasized the visual part a lot, but I should mention I like adding a mantra to this also. That okay. it makes it more likely to hear stuff and get into celestial music and hear entities and all that <laughs> weirdness that the whole world of magical sound can create and internal mantras can create. So yeah, and there's physical stuff as well. Like there, because one of the in fire casino usually like you know when you start getting really into it, the questions are like, God, there's just so much bodily bliss. It's distracting me from the visual field. That kind, those kinds of things. So these are good problems yeah. to have, but uh, you know, or so much energy in the body, so it yeah. can actually very become very somatic. It can even become like gustatory and olfactory. I've hallucinated, you know, smelling mm. incense that wasn't there and stuff on fire mm. retreats and tasted strange things. It can do all kinds of other sensory stuff. That's so wild, mm-hmm. and it's it, like really the mechanism is just strong concentration, right? Like it is, yeah. uh, and so. High dose. I mean, it, this lends some validity to the idea that, uh, you know, like concentrating, you know, things like the law of attraction, like concentrating hard on an outcome that you desire will draw it towards you. Or is it just like it creates some cool sensory phenomenon and, and you know, concentration is powerful and it might mess you up. You've given the like grimoire, the classic grimoire warning at the beginning, this it'll melt your face off, you it know, can. which is, which is oh, really wow. fun. But like, also <laughs> is there, fun is, is a funny word for it. It's, it's fun until it's actually happening to you or a friend and like yeah. freaking everybody out and disrupting the retreat and you're going, Oh God, what have we done? Like, yeah, wow. fun. But until like you realize that there's, I laugh and you know, I'm talking about this smilingly, but actually like, no, we've learned the hard way. The warnings are real. This is not like, yeah, I've got, I'm laughing in that kind of ER doctor way that we laugh about okay. stuff. Does that yeah. make If that makes sense. So yeah, fun kind of in the, you know, makes for good <laughs> stories and terrible dreams and sometimes a troubled conscience. <laughs> wow. That's actually a little dark. Uh, yep. And that's true. It, it's, it's uh it's so fascinating to talk to someone who's had like real firsthand experience with the full extent to which 
Things can go horribly wrong or right. Things can go horribly wrong. Yeah. Or right. Both are true. Or, or right. What What does right look like? What, Deep awakenings, massive healings, result, resolution of trauma, incredible interactions in other realms, profound, you know, capacities to shift into amazing states of mind. Yeah. Deep transformations this, of consciousness, all that stuff. Is this distinct from being awake? Does being awake add your to your like you not childishness uh, in terms of magic? I don't know that he. I think the even awakening only helps so much with the childishness around magic, right? Magic, yeah. you need. To, I think it's its own maturation axis, and there are people who just have more maturation around it. That is true, and that probably relates to maturation in other areas, at least to some degree. But I, I would not yeah. presume that anybody who's necessarily a mature being in any other area of life necessarily is intrinsically, of course, going to be mature around magic and the powers. In fact, I have ample evidence that is not necessarily true, though sometimes. It's like mm. when you bet on more mature, self-actualized, thoughtful, caring, patient, reasonable, yeah. you know, kind people being more mature around magic. Yes. Is that always true? <laughs> no. So, because yeah. it is fascinating, confusing, and disorienting, and what, and wow, and, and there are all these parts of ourselves. It's kind of like getting married. If any of you have gotten married, and all of a sudden there were all these expectations and strange behaviors that you weren't expecting at all, like that suddenly <laughs> happen in the context of marriage, even between kind, loving, wonderful people, and you go, what the heck? <laughs> Magic is like marriage. That's interesting. Yeah, it's because marriage is like a kind of spell that you cast it as is. a community. That is right. Uh, it's not kind of. It's explicitly. Yeah, it's we a right. bind these people together. It's. I mean, yeah. all, there it has all the. It has all the elements of a spell because it is. Yeah, it like it, you transition into a new uh, mm-hmm. state of consciousness or into a new incarnation almost. As, sure, as you've a got magical rings of. that you bless. I mean, like you've got a magical yeah. words that you say. <laughs> you've got a magical ceremony you perform in public. You've got a rich, it, it, you know, and in the same That's, way. I love that. You know, it's so cool to have uh, someone who like takes magic seriously, uh, doing this like real science work and and like pushing the the boundaries of a, a field that is at least stereotypically in in you know TED Talk land or whatever, like very like almost skeptical to the point of dogmatism. So it's yeah. it's really cool that you're like getting funding for this stuff and 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 like actually, you know, expanding so experiencers, our there are plenty of experiencers out there who also have resources and who have philanthropic capacity and scientific capacity. And and so when you get the convergence of those, right? So people who have had these kinds of experiences and they have some money and they're curious and they understand that there are problems and they understand that the scientific world sucks at this stuff badly. And they understand yeah. that even the fantastic world of, you know, work of people like, you know, Rupert Sheldrake and Charles Tart mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Ed Kelly and Dops and, you know, the Princeton, uh, you know, engineering anomalous research kids uh, lab. Um, and then the, uh, you know, Ions and Dean Radin and all these wonderful people, you know, and lots of others I haven't bothered to mention. They've done all kinds of fascinating research, and yet it continues to fall on deaf ears. And so we're trying to figure out how to remove some of the other barriers, like the clinical mainstreams, you know, provides a real barrier for people adopting this stuff and thinking it is okay. Because if you go in the DSM-5 TR, it's nearly all considered crazy and needs meds. 
you know, with some little subtle yeah. exceptions that nobody ever uses, what I call the spiritual right. exemption criteria. And so we're trying to just, you know, work at another angle of the problem. And the EPRC, the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium that I work with that's doing all this research, yeah, we're just helping to address one more of the barriers conceptually, sy systemically, culturally to a better relationship to this stuff globally. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, it's so wonderful. It's so beautiful. You know, in, in my diagnosis, I'm, I'm diagnosed bipolar and, and mm. in my diagnosis on my chart, I found out recently is uh, the, the symptom of hyper-religiosity. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> and so, well, here's the funny thing: sorting out what is bipolar and what is the understandable highs and lows and weirds of the path. Yeah, that's actually one of our critical questions, and will be one of the most interesting, fascinating, challenging, and rewarding to help start sorting out. And do I think there is something that straightforwardly is the bipolar disorder described in the DSM? Definitely, I've seen it lots of times. I have friend with yeah. it. They have no insights. They have no energy stuff. They have no anything. There's, there's, they've got none of the magical spiritual side. It's not causing a progression of consciousness. It's not leading to healings or deep transformations. Yeah, so, and when in manic phases, they might do some cool creative things. That's true, but it doesn't have any of the rest of it. <laughs> and then I have friends who, like, you know, they had no bipolar or whatever, and then they took a psychedelic or they wanted a ten day retreat or they did something, <laughs> and all of a sudden they're in this thing that looks very, very bipolar. They're having massive Kundalini openings and then dark night crashes and the standard stuff described in the old books that you would expect for meditators making progress on the path, contemplatives and adventurers and consciousness, right? And and yet mm -hmm. they may suddenly then find themselves in places where they're just not having problems with that anymore. And they don't have the things of bipolar disorder where it just gets worse and worse and worse unless you medicate it. And it, they're just like, there's nothing good gonna come from having more cycles, right? So they, they really do look distinctly different. And so, and then I've got friends who I'm pretty sure have both. Right. Yeah. They have they have good old straightforward yeah. garden variety medical muggly bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And they have insight cycles that have these highs, lows, and weirds. And these are often synced up. There's some curious relationship to it. And I think when we really start understanding the biochemistry of this, not to say meat is brain is consciousness or whatever as a fixed thing, but they're, you know, biology has something to do with this, clearly. And um I think when we we you know, start figuring out the physiology of this, I predict as a hypothesis that can be tested that we will find there is substantial overlap in the brain centers that relate these two things together somehow. And yet there are some distinct things as well. And that these people on the spiritual side, mm. the, the happen on retreats, psychedelic openings, getting a lot of insights, real healing and transformation and real problems from it. They get too high, they get too low, they get too weird, something, you yeah. know, that there will be overlap, differences, similarities, and opportunities to take some of this and maybe turn it into some of this, and opportunities you know, to have yeah. some of this mitigated by things that are not medications, by, by continued progress on the path. And I've seen this in a bunch of friends who got bi diagnosed as bipolar, and some years later, they're not bipolar at all. They're just awake and fantastic and improved. Right, this mm. cyclical process just made a massive positive difference in their lives, and they no longer need meds and will not for the rest of their lives. So that's, or so far as we can tell, certainly decades of evidence that they just don't need meds anymore. And, and then I've got other friends who like they're just, every time they go off their meds, it's just a catastrophe. 
like yeah. period <laughs> straight up. So I'm not, I'm not coming down pro or con med or pro or con, like yeah. it's all spiritual or it's all medical. I think it's going to be more complicated than either of those polls. That's my experience in the real world with lots of friends trying to sort out these questions. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a really good point. And it is, it is something that I, I maybe would aspire to, I guess, uh, I guess my question, like maybe my last question, cause we're coming up on an hour. I did want to ask you, so maybe two questions. Uh, is it okay if I draw a tarot card to give us like some, some direction for closing thoughts? Yeah. Why not? That sounds like fun. Okay, awesome. I'm 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 psyched to do that. But before I do, I I promised I I, I was asked to ask. Uh, is there? Uh, we kind of touched on this earlier. You know, some people wake up with no uh, you know meditation experience. Some people it takes I've like known a few intense, crazy athletics. Uh, and then most of them. Like, I wonder what your advice might be for someone who's like really mired in the earth stuff. Like, you know, I'm married, I've got, I've, I've got children, you know, I, I, how many kids probably, you got? What do you, what do you got? Tell me about your kids. <laughs> I, I actually, my wife is pregnant now. Oh, wow. Uh, which is, yeah, very exciting. And Congratulations. I also I hope have that goes a well. nine-year-old daughter. Oh, wow. Exciting. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And they're incredibly important to me and I have a responsibility and a commitment to them and I can't necessarily vanish for a month to go on a retreat. I get this Uh, question all the time. They've got 2.3 kids and 1.5 jobs and like they've got debts and aging parents and they're, they're in it, right? They are in it. I get this one a lot and yet they want to wake up and they want to do this. So every moment is as transient as any other, regardless of whether or not they're kids and debts and jobs and whatever. Every moment is as luminous as any other. Every moment is as causal and natural as any other. Every moment is as immediate as any other. Um, And when you start recognizing that this is true regardless of your circumstances, these fundamental universal characteristics and remembering to recognize them in little glimpses and then more and then more complete, there is a way to wake up to just this. And people who want to do something like this, you might check out books like Locke Kelly's um, Shift into Freedom is a cool take on this very immediate very folk very works well in the real world very glimpsey and just more glimpses yeah be super helpful stack up the glimpses that's and and again be very very wary of this dichotomy that this earthly life this material life this family life is in any way different from the point of view of awakening so i work 60 something hours a week i you know, I volunteer to help all this charity and research stuff, you know, and I, um, you know, have a family and, and, you know, the, the stepdaughter's coming for Thanksgiving, the step-granddaughter and other family people. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm in it too. Yeah. And yet, yeah, yeah, I can go on retreats. That's true. So I can go on some retreats, but even without that, like each of these things is as brightly, awarely, clearly, presently, immediately, truly workably something as anything other every moment. Mm. Yeah. You got to be monotasking. You can't be listening to notes in the net and uh, while you're doing the dishes. It's harder. <laughs> well, but no, people can wake up doing all kinds of things. I've woken up brushing my teeth, you know, to various things and stuff. You never know what's going to do it. And so, again, you got to be careful about rejecting anything as not being a potential source of awakening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all, I mean, all, all phenomena artificial. Kinda, yeah, have the universal yeah. characteristics that you recognize when you wake up. 
always. Yeah. It's very important. Very important. So wonderful. That's good news. <laughs> it is possible to wake up as a householder. Uh, and I know so people have I, done I, it. it. For most, it did take some real dedication to that sort of mindful presence to the characteristics right now and a lot of reflection on that. That can definitely yeah. happen. So for our closing thoughts, I drew an interesting tarot card. Uh, I got the Three of Swords, Ooh. which, yeah, do you, are, do you know the tarot? It's a, it's a dark card through the heart and the, yeah. Um, yeah, it's I, the I know Three that, Swords. It's like yep. a cloudy, rainy sky and mm-hmm. the swords are piercing the heart. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it's like a, often it's, a it's dark grief. And and, yep. Yeah, grief, heartbreak, uh, pain, despair. Um, Gloom, self-limiting and agony on me for those who remember hee-haw, which is nobody in your generation. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I don't mm-hmm. know. Does that, does that bring anything up for you? What, what is the, what? Ooh, this world is a mess right now of heartbreaking sword play and pain and war, right? Good yeah. gosh. Like what a card for our times, you know, yeah. we are headed toward, we are in, there's a lot of war and we're headed towards more war and there's a, a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of anger and hatred and greed and stupidity and cruelty and, and yeah, backbiting and awfulness. Just, just acknowledging the dark going on right now in the world. Wow. And a lot of potential for that to get worse. A lot of potential for regional conflicts to spiral out of control. You know, in terms of people piercing a lot of people's hearts right now, there's a lot of grief and heartbreak and disappointment and conflict. And ooh, sounds yeah. like a, a a very, you know, there's a lot of storm clouds on the horizon and worse than is, is happening now. And some parts of the world, absolute terror crap shows of awful, right? So, yeah. 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 Uh, so, what are your thoughts? Well, I guess I, I'm wondering, you know, I mean, you can wake up in a war. Uh, Absolutely. I know people who have. And also, um, like, got into horrible territory in wars and got traumatized. I've dealt with a bunch yeah. of soldiers that crossed the arising and passing away in some circumstances, usually through something that was, like, involved hypervigilance, like on a long night watch shift where they're just mm. super paying attention to everything. And then they crossed into, you know, they crossed above Tiferet or, the, you know, into the, you know, they crossed into real territory, whatever you want to call it. And before yeah. they knew it, and then they got into the dark night and, and a buddy got blown up or something terrible. So, oh wow, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, mess. it, yeah, but people can have profound insights in war and other circumstances. So, uh, maybe, maybe this is like outside your, your, uh, your, I don't know, like the only person whose pay grade this is might be God or something, but, uh, but you know, faced with all of the horrors and we touched on it earlier in the podcast too. And there's, there's, uh, some of it in the like magic section of our conversation, like faced with the, the possibility of these horrors and traumas and, um, you know, just like, you know, the impending disaster, the, the sort of the, the apocalypse that we're facing. Um, what, what is the awake reaction to that what like what do you what do you what do you recommend <laughs> you know <sighs> jesus <laughs> <laughs> wow that's quite the question um what do i recommend so i still recommend simple ordinary 
maintenance of oneself and one's family and one's community day to day, the simple steps that make a positive difference. I recommend mm -hmm. not focusing too much on doom scrolling and the news, though keeping obviously some awareness of what's going on. But the algorithms can spin us into hell if we're not careful. And you just got to watch yeah. that. If you're getting darker and darker and more and more doom scrolling stuff is showing up on your screen and it's the, the algorithms are designed to do that. Fear and anger are the things that get people to, to click on stuff, and they know yeah. that. And they So just be very careful of the algorithms is the next thing I'll say. The third thing I will say is if it's a bright, sunny day and you can enjoy the sunshine on your face, even if the world's going to hell, do. Smell the roses, enjoy the sunshine, feel your feet on the carpet, and, and watch a funny cat video. No shame in that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, take care of yourselves and the people immediately around you that are sort of your responsibility in your community. And, you know, then vote. <laughs> vote for the people you think will be less warmongery and less cruel and less <laughs> hateful yeah. and less awful. Yeah. Um, kinda. So this is where it gets really complicated. Like, you know, if you, if, and there, there are ways to make big differences in the world if you engage in philanthropy and big things, but most of us can't. So let go of the things you can't let go of. Just talking about politics real quickly. I don't know what the pol political stuff of your audience is, but I have very Mixed. weird mixes of reactions to both the U.S.'s sort of hegem hegemonic mil military imperialism, as well as the consequences of us withdrawing from the world. Both of yeah. those are severely problematic, and then it makes yeah. it really, really hard to figure out which way to, like, which way to to gravitate towards from at least that aspect of the political spectrum. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. Us withdrawing from the world is clearly a mess, and us engaging with the world, we clearly make a mess, and both are kind of awful right now. And I don't have a, anything like a good answer to that. Yeah. Right. Right, so, but the the answer that you did give, uh, you know, feel your feet on the carpet and yeah. feel the sun on your face, and take care of the people around you. Maybe is a, a like, share community, I, eat nice meals together, remember to laugh yeah. and play music and dance and walk yeah. and wander out under the stars and get off your damn screen and sorry. yeah. <laughs> I like I'm not going to be called to Congress to testify about my plan for like whether we should be an imperial power or not, you know, like ultimately, uh, those opinions, uh, might engender more learned helplessness than, uh, than like, sure. Feeling right. Of, that is a real risk. Yeah. But I like what you're saying. And the, the sort of like the body scanning that you have to do when you're engaging with social media to make sure that you're mm -hmm. not like falling prey to the algorithm and getting darker and darker. I think there's, there's a, a level of mindfulness involved in that as well. Um, but Daniel, Daniel Ingram, thank you so much for joining it. You've become a node in my net. I've, <laughs> it's been delightful. Thank you. This is really a really fun conversation. It's, it's delightful meeting you. Good luck with the birth of your new child and uh, with your daughter and family life. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's, it's just been fun to chat about these things. And if you're interested in more um, of the science work we're doing, T-H-E-E-P-R-C dot O-R-G. That's T-H-E-E-P-R-C dot O-R-G. 
um, hmm. and check us out. And if you want to help support this, if anybody out there is a philanthropist with some kind of capacity or even you got 10 bucks to give us, whatever, we'll take it. Um, ebenefactors.org <laughs> if you want to help support this work. Um, again, I do this all as a volunteer and none of this money goes to me. I actually support the charity with my own funds and social, temporal and financial capital. Um, but I don't have anything like mm -hmm. enough to take us where we need to go. So please let's all join together and make the world a better place for everybody who's going through these kinds of experiences and hopefully have the clinical mainstream suck vastly less at this. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> what a rallying guy. I love it.